underground web radio took a big hit last year when Live 365 went under. On Radio Survivor today, Paul talks with the young radio-loving entrepreneur who's helping to get tiny webcasters back on the online airwaves. In fourth grade, I had a radio station. My dad and I, we built like a little Ramsey FM transmitter and went like two miles from my house. So it's kind of, you know, something that's been fun. It was this whole like microcasting thing. Started broadcasting online in 2006 through Live 365 and then also moved to Shoutcast. So it's just, yeah, it's been kind of in my blood. It's something that I'm super passionate about. Uh, it's something that I've been doing for over a decade. Uh, actually makes me feel really old. It's just something that I've always loved, um, and I love helping out people, that kind of stuff, and giving a voice to people out there that have something unique and that's not otherwise going to get put on the internet. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismanel, and I'm one of your producers and hosts. And my name is Eric Klein, other host and producer of Radio Survivor, and I want to let you know that our friends at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, they're hosting their annual conference for community radio stations. It's happening in Denver, Colorado this year on July 17th to the 19th. There's a special Low Power FM Summit on the first day, Monday afternoon, the 17th, and this year's theme is A Place called community. Now that's on brand for Radio Survivor. Uh, we here at Radio Survivor can offer our listeners a $50 discount on the conference fee. The NFCB conference discount code for Radio Survivor listeners is SURVIVOR50. That is the word survivor and the numerals five and zero, all one word, SURVIVOR50. More info online at nfcb.org. And today we're going to talk about internet radio. And the reason we're going to talk about internet radio is because, frankly, it's an important grassroots medium, which has actually had a rough 18 months, which is something we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more and fill you back in. Mm -hmm. um, this is a story we've been following for about two years, really, here on Radio Survivor, uh, how there was kind of almost an apocalypse in independent online radio. Yeah. And when, uh, at the beginning of 2016. And when you talk about internet radio, Paul, you're talking very specifically about a kind of internet radio station that maybe not a lot of people are conjuring in their imaginations when you say it. It's, well, not, just a, it's not just a radio station on the internet. Well, yes, I am talking about that. I'm talking about radio stations, though, that are... are exclusively on the exclusively internet. that's so, I think that's the difference yeah in that's this particular key. time so you know stations you're, you're like a low power fm or x-ray fm which carries the show are online often you know your community stations your public stations will have an online stream in addition to their airstream but there are also online only broadcasters and not just merely sort of like pandora or or sort of the big names people know but there's yeah. this long tradition in the united states and elsewhere of people putting on their own. So both sort of hobby stations where it might be just one person uh, who operates it or small operations where they operate kind of like a community or college station, but uh, but do it online because yeah. of the fact that they don't have to have a license and all the infrastructure associated with the broadcast station. It's, it's a real radio subculture that I think a lot of people are unaware of because, um, because the biggest players in the space uh, are not are not performing in this way. You know, it's not like Spotify. You said you said the words Pandora. It's not like Pandora. This is or iHeartRadio or iHeartRadio, which is uh, something. Or I think in some cases thing. there are people who listen to online stations and aren't even aware that they are online only, right? Mm. Because they come up in an app like TuneIn 
or you know they they're just there. And if you're accustomed to listening to radio stations online, why would you necessarily right. distinguish between one that happens to be broadcast station and one that happens to be online? Yeah, gosh, I'm thinking of there's there's even some few examples of broadcast stations that that lost their terrestrial signal and went online only. And so there's that's another way that you would be. Uh, led astray because their branding might still make them sound like a terrestrial radio station. Exactly. Uh, But one of the important things for us to keep in mind is that an internet-only station is treated differently under the law than a broadcast station that happens to be online. And you're speaking specifically about the laws regarding what you pay to stream a song on yes. the internet. Yes. The, to the copyright holder, exactly. to the license holder. Yes. The difference here is that, well, well, first of all, let's just establish uh, sort of the scene. Every internet radio station has to pay royalties to songwriters and to musicians and performers. Yeah, the big ones, the little ones, the streamers. College stations, everybody in the United States is required to pay these royalties. It's a little bit different online than it is in broadcast. Broadcast radio stations, for their broadcast signals, do not have to pay anything to musicians. So songwriters get a little cut every time uh, their song is played. In the U.S., Paul. In In the the U.S. U.S. Different overseas. It is different overseas. But there's this exemption that's been written into U.S. law for decades that says that radio stations on their broadcast signals don't have to pay anything to musicians. So if, you, if you're in a band and your principal songwriter, let's say, is your singer and, uh, and your, your lead guitarist and you play drums so you didn't get any, any writing credit, your song gets played on the radio, you don't get paid. Paul, Paul can, I, can I stop you right here and take a, a producer executive action and play a clip for the listener that basically breaks this down, something that I produced a long time ago. So this clip you're about to hear is John Simpson of Sound Exchange, the organization that collects the royalties for songs uh, that play online. John Simpson happens to be, interestingly enough, uh, the first full-time employee of Sound Exchange, pretty much helped found the thing. Here he is explaining the royalties that Paul was just referring to, to me, in a documentary I produced back in the summer of 2007 for Pacifica Radio on uh, web streaming and web royalty rates changes. A lot of people don't understand that there's two copyrights in every recording. You know, the song copyright for the for the musical work, and then there's a, a copyright in the sound recording that's typically owned by a record company, sometimes owned by the artist or, or a producer. Um, uh, you know, who's paid for that recording. So what you have is the song would be, let's just say, for example, uh, Gotta Get You Into My Life, and written by Lennon and McCartney. And, you know, every time that song gets played on the radio in the United States, Lennon and McCartney get paid. John Simpson says that the band who performs the song on the radio, in this case the Beatles, get nothing because the U.S. has no performance rights, unlike other countries like the U.K., where both writers and performers get paid for their songs when they're played on the radio. And that's the way it is in most of the developed world. There's two payments being made, one to the performer, one to the songwriters. Now, if you think about it, there's another version of Gotta Get You Into My Life by Earth, Wind, and Fire. That plays on the radio in the United States. Lennon and McCartney are still getting paid because they're the songwriters. Earth, Wind, and Fire is getting nothing. Now, if you go into the U.K., 
Earth, Wind, and Fire performed Gotta Get You Into My Life. Leonard and McCartney get their songwriting share. Earth, Wind, and Fire don't get paid because they're a U.S. group and the U.S. doesn't have corresponding rights with Britain. So the United Kingdom collects performance royalties for U.S. artists and keeps it, all of it. And not just in the U.K., according to Simpson, but many countries all over the world. They collect these royalties and then say, well, the, the U.S. doesn't have the same rights. They don't pay our performers, so we're not going to pay their performers. So that was John Simpson of Sound Exchange explaining web royalty rates in a 2007 documentary called Web Radio in Peril. Uh, we'll have links to it in the show notes if you uh, want to find out how I covered the issues uh, a decade ago in a radio documentary that I'm still uh, so proud of. I threw it into this podcast today. Back to you, Paul. Right. And on internet radio, though, all the musicians get a cut, basically. Um, but it's a separate fee, a royalty fee that all internet radio stations play and uh, pay. And this is whether they are a broadcast station or whether they are a uh, in the, you know just internet only. They pay this fee. Right now, there are special exemptions written in, in particular for for broadcast stations. They play a little different rate. Internet stations, on the other hand, all of them pay a little fee that goes to the musicians to go to the performance rights, as it's called. And broadcast stations have all cut their own deals that are written into statute. So commercial stations pay a little different fee than um, non-commercial, licensed non-commercial stations, public radio stations, college radio stations, community radio stations pay a much, much, much lower fee, right? There is a fee, but it's much, much, much lower that they pay for, for to, to stream online. Yeah, and all of this, I guess... We can't get too deep into the weeds, but all of this is a result of a lot of uh, back and forth. It's a lot, a lot of, of back and forth. It's a lot of negotiations. A few so lawsuits. groups like NPR, like the Nash, like the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, uh, the National Association of Broadcasters, yeah. and other groups We're, lobby and advocate on behalf of all these different groups of radio stations to keep these fees under control. It's an important part of the history of the internet. That, it really that's is. not really well known. It really the is. last twenty years of back and forth about these licensing fees, right? And and uh, th- this all happens, and the arbiter is a group uh, associated with the, uh, the with the Library of Congress, the Copyright Royalty Board. Yeah, that 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 every that that, that reviews these rules every couple of cycles and releases new royalty rates. What happened? At the end of 2015, is that new rates were put out? That and that was typical and to be expected. What was lost is a particular piece of legislation passed by Congress called the Webcaster Settlement Act of 2009. And this act was passed on behalf of small, independent online broadcasters. And they did not have to be nonprofit. They did not have to be non-commercial. They did not have to be associated with a college or another nonprofit. And what it did, it basically said, if you didn't make a lot of money with your stream, if you made under a certain amount of money with your broadcast, or no money in many cases, you paid a greatly reduced rate. It was easier to be on the internet legally uh, under those rules, and those rules went away. Because the... The act in 2016, early, late 2015, early 2016, all of a sudden 
not so easy to be online. All of a sudden, these new rate, the, the these sort of uh, rates set by Congress disappeared. The act was only in effect until the end of 2015. And the Copyright Royalty Board made no particular note of it. It made no adjustment in, in the rates. So now what happened is small webcasters, rather than being able to pay basically a percentage of, of profits, and if you had no profits, uh, you paid very little, would now have to pay per song per listener, meaning every time one listener heard one song, cha-ching, yeah. you pay a little bit of money, about, about uh, 0.17 cents. Right. But this adds up. And what it means, unlike broadcast, is that the more listeners you have, the more expensive your stream gets. And plus, then on top of that, there's there's minimums. So it's not a matter of if I only had one listener, let's just say, uh, all the time, uh, then I'd have very low. You still have to pay minimums. So all of a sudden, small webcasters who might not even be incorporated, may not have a company, may just be a hobby, playing old-time music, playing oldies, playing any number of things. It's just a really diverse group of people. We tried to sort of get an idea yeah, of who Yeah, there's people who do there. all heavy metal, people who do all punk, people who do all folk, people who, who and, do... And some people are doing it... All Zappa. As, as you said, as a <laughs> hobby. There were, we, we came across a handful of people that were... Uh, entrepreneurs that were hoping to start a small business. Right. Yeah, exactly. Of, you know, passive income, playing oldies. <laughs> exactly. And so we'll put in our show notes. If you go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, this is episode 93, we'll, we'll give you references to articles we wrote about this yeah. more than a year ago, as well as some podcast episodes that we did, So you can, if you want to dig in. But, but let's just suffice it to say... What happened in 2016 was... These webcasters were priced out. That small, independent webcasters were priced out. Now there, there, you know, there are routes around. If you were able to create a nonprofit organization, then you could take advantage of rates specifically for nonprofits, and some people were able to do that. If you wanted to just keep going and pretend nothing had changed, sort of pirate, pirate web broadcasting, you could take that financial risk. You could take that risk. Stay but on, no one was going to force you off the air, but you might have. A yeah, debt. It's, it's one of these things. You know, it, it's sort of it's sort of like uh, not paying your taxes or not paying your television fee if you live in the UK. Uh, eventually, it may catch up to you, but it's just a matter of when it it it, it it'll it'll uh, catch up. To no you. one was pushing these webcasters off the air, but they were all taking a risk if they stayed right. on the air. Yeah, and part of that is you know these is is that these fees. At the same time, then that this happened, one of the largest. Right. webcast services that that provided a platform for internet broadcasters of all different sizes it shut down it was a service that allowed a person to 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 pay a monthly fee and to get their uh to get their little dream radio station on the on the airwaves quote unquote yeah. Yeah. on the on the internet and it's called live 365 you may have heard of it because it's been around since the 1990s and is really a pioneer in letting just about anybody start their own internet radio station. I love station. the history of the internet. And this company started running into all sorts of financial problems in 2015 already, where um, towards the end of 2015, some major uh, uh, funders pulled out, pulled out their investment. And you're talking about this because it's, it's possible. I mean, Live 365 shut down at the same time that the fees were going up, so it seemed like you might uh, correlate the two facts, but there were other factors. Right. So already it was having financial difficulties. And then what happened is that in January of 2016, Live 365 shuttered, taking with it 
about 5,000 internet radio stations that all of a sudden found themselves without a host. And some of these stations were stations that didn't qualify for these uh, for the Webcaster Settlement Act. There were big stations that were themselves sustainable and funding fundable, so they could find new hosts. They could find new services to get them on uh, keep going. But some of these webcasters were small webcasters who might have been, you know, finding a way to pay this uh, Webcaster Settlement Act on their own fees, but who were then also going away. And but so it was definitely a contributing factor that this expiration of the Webcaster Settlement Act meant that now these small webcasters had to pay a lot of fees. So a lot of them were just going to simply go off the air, which means lost revenue for Live 365. Are you willing to talk about, I, I just need to, I want to get an idea. I feel like some webcasters were paying as little as like $65 a month to, to be on the air and then their bills were going to go up tenfold. Isn't yeah. that basically the yeah, idea? Yeah, basically it. Yeah, that's basically so tenfold some, or more. Something yeah. that you could consider a fun hobby that cost you $65 a month was about to cost you $700 a month, and that's not fun anymore. Yeah, exactly. So with that being sort of the final nail in the coffin, Live 365 went away in January 2016, taking with it lots of independent internet stations of all different sorts, some of whom you know relocated to new services, some of which never came back. And it's almost impossible to do an accounting of it because there's like no central resource. That's one of the things that I like to underline when we talk about web radio together here on Radio Survivor, Paul, is that... um, There's no FCC. And there's no... Like we, of all the people uh, in in the land of the internet who are paying attention to this stuff, uh, I don't... (laughs) we, We haven't found very many people that are trying to pay attention to it's webcasting much, in, in a in a broad big picture perspective. Yeah, pretty much it's us and the radio and internet newsletter, Rain <laughs> News. And Rain News, I mean covers podcasting, right. covers big streaming, but they did they could did and continue to do good reporting on this. So I can recommend them highly as another source, but it was pretty much Yeah. Almost unnoticed anywhere else it's, besides Radio Survivor it's or, an or internet, Rain. It's an internet subculture that is diverse and un unexplored by and, by and, writers right? and, yet, and we we're, so we're trying to get into it a little it's not so underground because i think there's tons and tons of people who explore it every day sure. in ways that they're not always necessarily aware that's through, the way the internet works now through right? tune in the or shadows. even you know through all sorts of online radio apps or just you surf it onto a website etc um, it's not hard to find. You just have to know it's there. Yeah. Or sometimes you found it and you don't know it's there because you don't <laughs> really know what's underneath, right? So Live 365 went away, taking away all these radio stations in January of 2016. Lots of uh, small webcasters were hoping that that they could lobby uh, the Copyright Royalty Board to change the rates uh, or lobby Congress. Because and they'd been saved in the 11th hour before, before in, yeah. in, in years pri- previous. And, and it did not happen. And it has not happened. And so basically, since January of 2016, there hasn't been much in the way of a service ready for a small webcaster that's sort of plug and play. Meaning, I know I'm covered by subscribing to this service. Certainly, as a small webcaster, you can go make your own deal with with Sound Exchange, which collects the royalties and pay those rates, which, as you mentioned, are much more expensive than they used to be. In addition to having to pay for the the service. So now, why we're talking about this? Why we're talking about this in May of 2017, in June of 2017, is that Live 365 
is back. The service uh, and its trademarks have been bought. And the service is now back accepting new stations. And with the deal that small webcasters can come on board for a monthly fee of about $59 a month to start and start their radio stations again with having their royalties covered. So basically, it is a plug-and-play option now. You don't have to be a pirate. You can be back on the air. Be legit. Don't have to incorporate as a nonprofit. Don't have to incorporate as an LLC or a C-Corp or anything. You don't have to have the cover of another organization. Any webcaster now can go back on with Live 365 and start broadcasting. And, And to me... This is important news that obviously isn't going to be covered, and it's not simply it's not because uh, you know we're big supporters of this particular enterprise, but in part I'm sort of surprised that in the intervening uh, 18 months, no other service came forward to propose the same option. Nobody else saw sort of an opportunity to to come out and and start offering a service for small. Uh, webcasters again, and somebody took it upon himself to acquire uh, the rights to Live 365 and to start up the service again. So we're going to talk with that person. His name is John Stevenson, and he is the owner of a content delivery network called Empire Streaming. And a content delivery network, basically, uh, it's a company that helps you distribute audio or video on, on the web helps to provide the sort of the necessary pipes and infrastructure so that you can say, Hey, uh, I want to distribute this audio or video. I don't want to necessarily only do it on YouTube or I don't want to use YouTube or Vimeo or something. Cause there's all sorts of reasons why you might not want to. Mm-hmm. And I want to get this out there. So he owns a company called empire streaming. It's he funny. acquired the rights to live 365, and, uh, on May 23rd announced that, uh, the service is now open for signups so that they're taking new stations and I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to get to the, like, why, how? And of course the big question is, I mean, how are you going to afford it? If, if, if the sort of the lapsing of the webcaster settlement act of 2009 causes apocalypse of small webcasters, my question is, is how are you going to make the economics work? And, and John explains that for us. John Stevenson of Live 365. And John, maybe to start, you can tell us what is Live 365. Yeah, absolutely. So Live 365 is a two-sided internet radio platform. So on one side, we are a listening destination for listeners to discover unique content. So whether that's uh, you know a DJ or a 15-year-old in his bedroom or a church or a high school that wants to put an internet radio channel on the internet, um, you can go and actually discover that kind of unique content. And on the other side, we are a platform for anybody to sit there and create their own online radio station. So we provide the tools for distribution. We provide the tools for hosting it, uh, the music licensing here in the United States, and then also uh, monetization capabilities. So pretty much it's a plug and play platform. If you have content that you want to get discovered on the Internet, you can sit there and seamlessly start an Internet radio station for you know one low monthly package. And now Live 365, it's a storied brand, if you will. It, it, Live 365 is a pioneer, really, in uh, internet uh, radio broadcasting, but it kind of went away, and now it's come back. How did you come to sort of resurrect Live 365? Yeah, so um, obviously I was following Life 365 like many people uh, back in 2015 uh, when we heard that detrimental news in December. And yeah, I was actually talking with uh, 
the previous general manager at the old Live 365. His name's Johnny Floater. Uh, I was in Paso Robles, California, uh, where he lives. Um, and we were just like talking, that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, hey, what's going on with Live 365? I'd love to, you know, acquire the brand name, that kind of stuff. Um, and he's like, you know, hey, here's the trustee's name for the bankruptcy. Uh, you know, give him a call, see what you can do. So, yeah, it took probably about a two or three month period of, uh, you know, talking back and forth and doing some like paperwork, all that kind of stuff. But um, ultimately, we are about to acquire it through uh, bankruptcy court. And you said acquire the brand name. So essentially, is that basically what you own? You don't necessarily have any of the assets, though I'm really not sure what they would be. Um, no. So, I mean, we pretty much acquired anything of value. So Live 365 Inc., which was the company that was previously Live 365, like that's still in bankruptcy. So all of that's still getting settled. But basically, we acquired like the trademarks, the domain names, all of their server assets that they had in San Jose, California. We acquired like the customer list, all that kind of stuff. And did you get any insight into why the company went into uh, bankruptcy? Um, I mean, ultimately, the the main one was the loss of the Small Webcaster Settlement Act of 2009, which definitely impacted a decent amount of their customers. Just some other observations from our end is obviously it was a huge operation. They had a huge overhead. They had, you know, a server room that's much larger than our office that they had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month in overhead. They had 50 something staff. They had uh, actually toured their old office. They had a huge floor in uh, Foster City that they were paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month on rent. Um, so I think one of the other huge attributing factors was the large overhead. And then also kind of, yeah, having investors and stuff like that, like meeting their demands, all of that kind of stuff was ultimately another reason. And you mentioned the Small Webcaster Act, and that's something which we've talked about on our show here. But are you able to kind of just summarize like what that was and why it going away was significant? Yeah, absolutely. So the Small Webcaster Settlement Act of 2009 basically allowed anybody that had below 1.25 million in revenue and below 5 million aggregated tuning hours per month to basically get a special provision for lowering their barrier to entry into getting into internet radio. So it allowed them to pay on a percentage of revenue model, and that was 10% of their gross revenue versus having to pay the per performance that the other large companies like iHeartRadio and Pandora that are running under for their non-interactive streaming. And so that total listening hour is basically uh, the number of hours uh, times uh, the number of listeners, right? More or less. Correct. Yeah. If you had two concurrent listeners listening for one hour, that would be two ATH aggregated tuning hours. Now, since that was sort of a problem for for the uh, old Live 365, how does it not a problem for the new Live 365 under your ownership? Um, so one of the big misconceptions was that uh, Live 365 did rely on the Small Webcaster Settlement Act. That's actually not the case. So they actually paid under the commercial rates, which at the end of 2015 was 0.0023 per performance because Live 365 was well above the 1.25 million in gross revenues. So the actual Live 365 service itself was actually operating under that. The thing that happened was basically a lot of their smaller customers actually went out and got their own sound exchange licenses, which, you know, they were small companies. They were below the 1.25 million in uh, revenue um, and they were actually able to kind of afford it under that. So you know, putting those people aside, the, there, there's still a huge core of their business that relied on the commercial rates that companies like Pandora and iHeart are paying under. Um, and that rate actually went down to 0.0017 per performance in 2016. Okay. So to kind of break this down, when you talk about that that rate, 0.0023 per performance, uh, that is 0.0023 uh, dollars. Is that 0.0023 cents? Yep. Yeah. So um, 0.0023 dollars. So uh, that would be what? 0.23 cents. Yeah. 
per 100 listeners. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, and so that's, that means that, that uh, essentially what happens is the uh, broadcaster is paying this in royalties per song, more or less, uh, per, is it 100 listeners? Is that correct? So yeah, it would be 17 cents per 100 performances. So um, yeah, if you had two people listening to one song, that would be two performances that you would pay. And so the reason why this became a problem then, and just sort of untangling this for our listeners who maybe aren't uh, living this night and day like you and I are, um, what this means is that uh, some of the smaller uh, webcasters who are using Live 365 weren't uh, going through Live 365 for the payment of their royalties. What they were doing is is dealing directly with SoundExchange, which is the company that collects performance royalties on behalf of artists in the United States. And so when their rates went up dramatically, they basically could no longer be customers of Live 365. They could no longer afford to properly license their webcasts, and so Live 365 lost customers back then. Is that about correct? Yep. Yeah, that's correct. And so going forward then, with the new version of the service that you're going to offer, how are you going to avoid that problem? How are you going to accommodate small hobby webcasters who maybe don't have a large uh, income base who no longer have an exception, who no longer have these lower rates that they can pay in terms of royalties to sound exchange? Um, yeah, so I mean, under the commercial rates, uh, the economics do actually work. So with the packages that we do have with the uh, 59 up to our largest packages, 274 per month. So our, the economics actually do work there. Another thing for people that do have larger audiences, uh, so our package goes up to 7,000 total listening hours per month. Um, people that do have larger audiences, we do have uh, you know solutions that kind of help them work. So under Sound Exchange, there's a nonprofit rate which gives you up to 159,140 um, aggregated tuning hours per month. We can help people to create their own nonprofit if they have something you know that's uh, that's possibly viable in terms of the IRS um, and sustainable and that kind of stuff. So we do have some solutions out there for people that do have larger audiences. But um, yeah, getting back to kind of the microcasters and stuff like that. Yeah, the economics do actually work. And so in terms of the economics working, if I'm a small webcaster and I want to start a station or bring my station over to Live 365 and I have maybe uh, typically 100 listeners at a time, am I paying my royalties to sound exchange or, or are you going to pay them on my behalf as part of my service fee? Um, so if you qualify to go within one of the uh, broadcast one through three packages that we do have published on our website, we cover all of the royalties for sound exchange. And then we also cover the musical works to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC under that. So it's a, it's sort of a one-stop shopping for me as a small webcaster. You'll cover all of my fees provided that my uh, n- my listeners meet those different package requirements. Yep, exactly. So as long as you stay within those, those package like parameters and stuff like that, yeah, we, we cover everything for that. And so then... For you, you're basically dealing with sound exchange as as, a, as an aggregator almost. Does that make sense? You know, where you're getting you're able to pay these uh, commercial rates, uh, and you're doing so to cover everybody. But in aggregate, uh, it all works out kind of like a wholesale model almost. Yeah, exactly. So um, under sound exchange, after you hit 100 channels, um, you don't actually pay a per channel um, addition. So basically, we met the minimums of sound exchange because we exceeded 100 channels in March. So that's you know fifty thousand dollars, and then basically that fifty thousand upfront uh, is recuperable against the performance fees. So you know if we add one hundred and one stations, that next station is not going to cost us another five hundred dollars until we start exceeding the number of performances that we have prepaid. I see that that's an important point. One I think uh, that's that I, I really want to underline here. So what you're saying is that with Sound Exchange, if I'm a radio station and I decide to have several online streams. I pay a new fee for every new channel, but you're saying at 100, once I've got 100, 
you sort of topped out on a new channel fee. And so you're paying 100 and now you're just past that. There's no additional fees per channel. So any and, and ostensibly each of these small webcasters that uh, is using Live 365 or large webcaster for that case is a channel, but you're over 100, so there's no additional fee. So now all you're paying is sort of the aggregate number of song plays for everybody using your service. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. You're listening to Radio Survivor. I'm Eric Klein. My co-host Paul Reismandel is speaking with John Stevenson, who recently resurrected the company Live 365 breathing new life into the troubled industry of small online-only music stations. You also mentioned kind of overhead being being one of the uh, considerations that, that, that was a problem for the old Live uh, 365. Uh, how are you addressing that kind of question? How are you reducing the overhead? Yeah, so, um, I mean, one of the big things is that we completely rebuilt the platform from the ground up. So if you're familiar with the old Live 365, it was definitely uh, dated um, and it was very legacy. So that legacy platform cost a lot of money to keep online because, you know, it wasn't optimized for resources or uh, you had to continually patch stuff or you had to have, you know, an engineer that used some obscure database or you had to use, uh, you know, some expensive Oracle software because that's what it was exactly built on. We basically rebuilt the entire platform. Um, it's running on, uh, you know, a few dozen servers right now, uh, instead of a large room with, you know, 10 racks of hundred plus servers. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the big things. The next one is obviously staff. So everybody's basically working remotely. So we don't have that office overhead. We don't have, yeah, you know, huge expensive HR payroll. Yeah. And then it's, it's pretty much it. So it's basically, yeah, we were basically optimized, uh, you know, the entire infrastructure, the entire platform, and then also kind of streamlined HR to make it a lot more affordable. And for the non-technical folks, when you say legacy, you're basically talking, these were old computers. These were old servers running old software that was much more expensive to keep up and going compared to uh, modern hardware and software. Yeah, exactly. So uh, definitely the hardware and stuff like that. Um, and then also the software itself as well. So when Live 365 came out in 1999, I mean, it was a pioneer. So, you know, if you needed a streaming server, what did you do? You went and built it out yourself. If you needed an ad insertion platform, you went and built it yourself because there was no third party really that you could tap into. So um, to kind of maintain that in older languages like C and stuff like that, it's expensive to hire developers that know that and, you know, can optimize the code and that kind of stuff. Whereas now we have a lot of off the shelf, like open source software that we can tap into that is cheaper to develop and continue continually like optimizing and stuff like that. And so for the nerds, can you, can you, uh, can you reveal what, what sort of operating system you're using or what kind of uh, uh, software stack you're relying on? Our encoder is built on liquid soap right now. Probably over the next 12 months, we're going to be replacing that uh, with our own encoder. Um, but that's what we're using for the playback. All of our servers are Linux-based. Uh, everything's pretty much written in Python. Um, and we're using uh, a forked version of IceCast for our streaming server. Okay, IceCast is an, is an open source, basically, version of, of Shoutcast, which is one of the very early uh, streaming platforms, audio streaming platforms, correct? Yep, correct. And you, you mentioned ad injection and all of that. So uh, are you offering the opportunity for small webcaster to have advertisers? Yeah, so um, for some clarification, so the $59 package, which is our base package, actually requires ads. So that's kind of how we actually increase our margins on that. But there's also a benefit to the webcaster itself. Um, so we do a 50-50 revenue share on that. So basically for every dollar we take in, we credit 50 cents back to your account. So yeah, we do offer ad insertion for that. Uh, we do offer options for people to opt out of ads. So if it's, you know, a different format or somebody wants to have no ads on their station, you can sit there and upgrade your package. 
And that's, yeah, that's basically what we're all about is aggregating a bunch of audio ad impressions the same way that we do with like performances for royalties um, and then kind of selling those buys to different ad agencies. And um, we're working on doing a lot of like programmatic implementation and um, some like creative like campaigns, that kind of stuff. So we can really drive up like our revenue per 1000 listeners so we can make it sustainable for small webcasters. And uh, in terms of these ads, these are these will sound like radio commercials for all intents and purposes, correct? Yeah, I mean, they'll sound exactly like what you hear on Pandora, what you hear on iHeartRadio, that kind of stuff. So yeah, there'll be like 30-second audio ads. Uh, we're working on doing stuff with like showing companion banners, as you'll see on like the iHeartRadio app. Uh, this is all kind of stuff that's coming down the pipeline, but yeah, exactly. And if I'm a small webcaster who... Uh, does a lot more voice breaks, maybe has a bit more of like kind of freeform style rather than just strictly uh, programmed MP3s uh, in, in a playlist. Uh, how do those ads work? Um, so our ads are actually very easy to start using. So you can use any third-party automation system that you want. Um, it just has to support an IceCast 2 encoder. Uh, and the way that we trigger ads on our end is uh, basically using metadata. So you can sit there and have a 30-second ad break, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, or up to 120 seconds per ad break. Um, and basically in that metadata, it sends us the duration of the ad break. So you send a tag that says, hey, this is a 30 second ad break. Then we know whenever that comes through uh, to overlay it with uh, dynamic audio ad. And is that tag actually like in an MP3 file or, or something like that? Yep, exactly. So it's just uh, contained in the ID3 tag. Um, and then it just comes through as the IC metadata. And we just recognize that on our end. So basically, just it's like programming in uh, an ad as, as if you were uh, had the ad yourself. And then uh, with regard to this, what's the requirement? How how many? Uh, what's the ad load every hour that uh, one of the fifty nine dollar uh, package uh, subscribers needs to run? Um, so we require four minutes per hour, um, and the maximum ad break that we support is two minutes. So obviously, you can't run four minutes at one in one ad break. But yeah, I mean, it's basically the requirement is four minutes. And um, like I said, there's no requirement in terms of if you have to meet a certain number of listening hours in order to start monetizing. Uh, it basically starts immediately. And because of the fact that uh, you're covering the royalties at, at that package, I, as a webcaster, I don't need to worry about whether or not I'm qualifying as, as a non-commercial or non-profit station otherwise uh, because of these ads. Correct, yeah, because we're operating under the uh, commercial webcaster rates. Do you currently have any, any uh, actual non-profit stations uh, that would qualify for non-commercial rates, uh, or do you plan to, and, and how are you going to accommodate them? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's something that we actually have in the works. Um, so basically, we're going to be providing them the platform for streaming, uh, for distribution, we're basically going to be providing them um, the actual report so they can stay compliant. So under the nonprofit, you have to have the total I created tuning hours per month, and then also a list of your performances. So um, we're basically doing all the like heavy lifting on our end for the reporting and all of that kind of stuff. And then, uh, but they, they'll pay a different rate structure, I, I presume. Yeah, so uh, Live365 is not dealing with sound exchange uh, in terms of the nonprofits. We basically give them the reports and then they, you know, because they have the nonprofit status, they're going and filing the reports for themselves. And so th- right now, the service is going to be open to the public. Is that, is that correct? You're ready to just start signing up uh, new webcasters? Yeah. Um, so as of today, you can go to the website, sign up. You can view, you know, all of our different packages, what we have to offer. And you can start broadcasting within a couple of minutes. And so my question is, uh, for you, what 
made you decide to come in and acquire Live 365 and begin offering a service uh, like the old one? Because it was something which I think you realized you were paying attention uh, when when Live 365 started having troubles and then announced it was going into bankruptcy. I mean, it just sent a chill through the webcasting community that I think they still haven't recovered from. They're still shivering uh, because... So many webcasters relied upon it. Many uh, were able to pay their royalties through Live 365 as well. And, you know, as well, there were plenty of, of you know, very uh, profitable or at least very sustainable operations using Live 365, which were suddenly left out in the cold. What what caused you to want to kind of step in and be able to do this? And how were you able to kind of uh, come up with the resources? Yeah, so um, in terms of why I wanted to do it, um, so I was actually a customer of Live 365. Back in the day, I also used Shopcast, so I had my own internet radio channel, um, which I don't have anymore, but uh, that's kind of how I got into internet radio. Um, so it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, I used it before. I thought it was a super cool service. Um, and then also for all the reasons that you mentioned, I mean, there's like we saw a huge void in the market. Um, there's not really a service like this out there for small webcasters to offer a fully compliant, all-in-one um, solution for building a radio station. So... Uh, from a business standpoint, um, we saw it as being very lucrative. In terms of the actual resources and stuff like that, we uh, are basically tapping into Empire Streaming, which is a content delivery network that I founded in 2010. Um, so we host uh, close to 1,200 radio stations on that. So we're basically uh, using a lot of the platform that we built there, a lot of the infrastructure that we've already had, um, and a lot of kind of the overhead and like HR resources and that kind of stuff is basically shared between both. So we're able to kind of fully bootstrap this company. And so you've had this company for a while, and I think I read in your hometown newspaper uh, that you started this this company in high school. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So it would have been in, I guess, tenth grade uh, in two thousand ten. So yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a hobby. Um, so like I said, I, I had a radio station of my own. Um, we kind of grew our audience. We moved to dedicated servers, and then kind of just started like hosting people uh, that were friends, and then friends of friends, and that kind of stuff. And that's kind of how Empire was founded. And now you're helping hundreds, if not thousands, more radio stations uh, get on air, get back on on air, or on the web, that is. Yep, exactly, yeah. And so Live 365 shut down, the the original Live 365 shut down on January 31st of 2016, and now here it is, we're in May of 2017. And when did you acquire the assets? Was that earlier this year, 2017? Um, no, so that was over the summer of 2016. So I was actually traveling uh, in Europe, and yeah, during that whole process, it was you know I had like a four or five hundred dollar cell phone bill just from like going back and forth with the trustee. But uh, yeah, it was actually fully acquired um, in July of 2016. The original Live 365 shut down in January 31st of 2016. Um, it's now May of 2017. And you began acquiring the assets sort of in the middle of 2016. Uh, but sort of we've had, you know, going on to, you know, almost like 16 months without another sort of service that's so accessible like the old Live 365 was, especially for small webcasters. Uh, why do you think no other company stepped in and, and tried to serve this this large untapped market? Um, I mean, so I think outside of, you know, the minimums and stuff like that that we're paying for royalties, I mean, we actually do have a lot of larger overhead. Um, so we do have two lawyers in Washington, D.C. that, uh, you know, we're actively working with. So that has a huge bill. Um, rebuilding the actual entire platform is super expensive. Um, and then also the royalties as well. So like the barriers to entry are super high. And then I think also to, uh, you know, building out another brand uh, that is outside of Live 365 would be super expensive as well from like a marketing standpoint. Um, so one of the really cool advantages that we have with Live 365's name 
is that it was basically plug and play. You know, you started getting customers. We put a wait list up on January 1st. We had, you know, eight to 10 people saying, hey, I want to come back. You know, I was a customer of Live 365 since 2000 or 1999, whatever. Um, and it was just, you know, it was cool. It's, we've spent zero dollars on marketing so far and we're up to 300 active stations right now. We have a lot more in the pipeline coming down over the next couple of months. So I think those are kind of the, the big things is it's super expensive to kind of get off the ground. And then also in terms of, uh, you know, time, I mean, I've been spending 12 to 16 hours on certain weeks for, you know, for entire days or whatever. So it's a lot of work, um, but it's something that I'm super passionate about. So that's why we're making it work. Why are you so passionate about it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's something that I did as a hobby. So um, in fourth grade, I had a radio station that was uh, my dad and I, we built like a little Ramsey FM transmitter and went like two miles from my house. So it's kind of, you know, something that's been fun. It was this whole like microcasting thing, basically, and started broadcasting online in 2006 uh, through Live 365 and then also moved to Shoutcast. So it's just, yeah, it's been kind of in my blood. It's something that I'm super passionate about. Uh, it's something that I've been doing for over a decade. Uh, actually makes me feel really old. But um yeah, it's just something that I've always loved, um, and I love helping out people, that kind of stuff, and giving a voice to you know, people out there that have something unique and that's not otherwise going to get put on the internet. And so for the radio nerds who I know listen to our show, you said a Ramsey uh, FM 15 or FM 10, and, and those are that's a small kind of kit you could buy, with no longer available, which was basically what we call a Part 15 legal unlicensed transmitter, right, that it, it puts out like 10 milliwatts of power, and you said you could hear maybe two two uh two miles away would you must have had a pretty good antenna that you built with <laughs> there with uh, your dad. Yeah, no, it, the, the actual model was uh for all the geeks out there it was a ramsey fm 100b and yeah uh -huh. my dad and i uh we put uh, an antenna on the house um it was a one watt transmitter actually so it did actually exceed the uh part 15 rules but um <laughs> they ran it for a couple of days or a couple of hours per day so it was you know kind of under the radar so you never got you never got that knock on the door from an fcc field agent no, I mean, that was one of my mom's biggest concerns is like, yeah, it's going to be a black Tahoe show up at my parents' house. It was, yeah, I was going to get hauled out in handcuffs, but no, that didn't happen. And, and what kind of shows did you do? Uh, I actually ran an oldies radio station. So it was basically like 60s and 70s music. Um, the reason why I got into that was because my dad had a classic car um, or a classic truck, rather. Uh, and that's what they obviously played at, like the cruisings and stuff like that. So um, pretty much from kindergarten up until I started a radio station. That's the music that I listened to. And you didn't do college radio, did you? No, actually, um, I get asked that a lot. Yeah, I didn't actually. I, so I went to University of Pittsburgh. Um, I didn't actually get involved in the radio station. I mean, it was just uh, it was it was too much to kind of commit to. I didn't really do much outside of school, and then also hanging out with friends. Um, I didn't really do anything else other than work. So and you were you were running your company right still then your your content distribution network. Yep. Yeah, I ran that all through college up until now as well. <laughs> so yeah, you had a little bit on your plate there, and now and now you get to return to radio. And exactly, so yeah. uh, for folks, you know, especially webcasters who may have been left out in the cold with the shutdown of the original Live 365, what kind of assurance can you offer that, uh, that this isn't going to happen again, that they can uh, sort of trust uh, the new Live 365 to stick with them, to be there, uh, to help them create interesting, uh, underground, independent hobby radio? Um, I mean, I would say that one of the biggest things is, you know, without them, this wouldn't be possible. So um, one of the cool things is Live 365 is a, a destination for listeners to discover content. Um, we basically need these broadcasters to come in. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's kind of like a partnership. I mean, we're here to help them grow. Um, we have some cool stuff coming out in 2017 to kind of help them accelerate their audience or uh, really engage with their audience. So, yeah, I mean, one of the big things is, you know, without them, 
we're pretty much nothing. Um, in terms of cash flow and stuff like that to make sure we're not going to go bankrupt again, um, we're actually actively seeking VC funding. Um, and I've also actually acquired a loan from the bank to kind of help us through the next couple of months as well. So yeah, in terms of being cash flow positive, uh, I mean, that's all stuff that's getting, you know, straightened out. And, you know, it, we have a lot of positive light with a lot of different, uh, you know, VC kind of firms and stuff like that that are willing to invest into Live 365. They love the story. They love, you know, the opportunity that we have. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely very positive in terms of that. Well, John, I mean, I have to say I do wish you luck. Uh, I remember uh, Live 365 very fondly and uh you know, it's great to see the brand come back. And I'm really happy to see an opportunity for small webcasters uh, to get back online and get back to broadcasting. Of course, people can find uh, find your service at live365.com, correct? Yep, that's correct. Um, and then we also have our iOS MVP, minimum viable products, iPhone app out so people can sit there and actually download the app, listen to music and stuff like that. So I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to ask you to untangle what is what is the minimum viable app again for people who don't live in kind of uh, sort of VC land or who aren't who aren't necessarily uh, online entrepreneurs. Uh, you want me to define MVP? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, so uh, MVP stands for minimum viable product. Um, it's basically uh, you know a product that doesn't have bugs or you know has very few bugs, but basically it's what's going to survive in the marketplace that users are gonna basically want. So. Um, right now, it's very basic in terms of its functionality. Like you can sit there, we have uh, top stations, we have trending stations on there. Um, you can sort by genre, you can do um, you know searches, that kind of stuff. But it's going to be a lot more uh, intricate later down the road. So like some of those interactivity features that I was talking about, um, some more curation on our end. So um, like another cool thing that's coming out is that uh, a lot of people on Live 365 go quote live, um, hence the name. Uh, so we're going to do something where, you know, if you open the app, you can actually find a radio station. Maybe it's somebody DJing, you know, a Saturday night mix show or something like that. You'll be able to actually, you know, go and find them because it's super cool to listen to somebody while they're actually live and, you know, comment or do something like that. So that's kind of all stuff that's coming down the pipeline as well. But um, MVP basically is just, you know, very basic. You can go and listen to stations. You can favorite a station, that kind of stuff right now. And uh, Joe, what's your title? Uh, my title is CEO. Um, I mean, I don't really like to, I guess, call myself CEO right now, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have, uh, it's basically the running title right now. Okay. Uh, John Stevenson, CEO of Life365.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. That's John Stevenson, the new CEO of Live 365. Thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with Paul Reismandel. And Paul, tell me why <laughs> you're, we're not, we here at Radio Survivor, we're into the non-commercial universe of media. That's really what, what gets us excited and why we podcast and why we, why we uh, write about uh, communities at radiosurvivor.com but here you interviewed uh, um, someone in the private sector someone an entrepreneur as it were what makes you so excited about what he's up to well because it's filling a very needed niche right and and I I'm for independent media right and the fact that independent radio right that could be non-commercial or could be sort of 
sort of commercial-ish, but truly independent radio. Small. Yeah, it's small. commercial, but it's teeny, teeny, yeah. teeny, tiny. Got, got nearly extinguished on the internet. Like, you, if you want to be like a small video caster on YouTube or Vimeo, you can do it, right? There's nothing stopping you. Yeah, they've yet, even figured out the music licensing. They've figured that all out for you. But radio, the simplest of technologies, got extinguished. And so the opportunity for lots more, for a new reflourishing of independent internet radio, I think it's exciting. And so I'm not necessarily endorsing Live 365 per se. I, I, would, I hope maybe that somebody will see that, that the model is workable. And there will be alternatives, and there could be non-commercial, non-profit alternatives. Um, You know, I think there could be a rich ecosphere um, if this is demonstrated to be viable. And to me, that would be a tremendous outcome. That would be uh, a great uh, boon to independent media online, which I think is is a very very important thing. And just so people know, in in the past, we have talked to StreamLicensing.com. A different business, a different in the business. same in the same marketplace, which as which does a similar kind of aggregation. A competitor, and try, uh, yeah, sort of. yes, yes, and no. I mean, so they only take care of your licensing, right? So that's why they're streamlicensing.com. They don't provide you okay. with your your streaming service, the service that actually gets your signal out to listeners. What they would they do, do your paperwork. They do your your paperwork. They help you out with the licensing. A similar kind of aggregation, and they've been around before the big apocalypse of 2016, uh, but continued to be, of course, relevant into 2016. So we talked to them yeah. about a year a year ago as well. That apocalypse that Paul is referring to, of course, is uh, <laughs> of course is in 2016. It became much more difficult for these tiny webcasters to stay on on the air, as we say, on yeah. the web legally. Their fees went up, and so they had to pay about ten times as much or so to stay to stay streaming. And uh, that yeah, it was the expiration of the Webcaster Settlement Act of two thousand and nine that, that really um, squashed a, a huge amount of underground diversity. I know yeah. Paul's not a fan of the word underground since since it's all on the web. It's right, it's a click away. But there's a lot of uh, webcasters out there that that had to shut overnight. Well, for a long time, when there when you couldn't get a low power FM license, and now you still can't, meaning you can't get a new one right now. The window has closed the window again. has closed. It's a great alternative and and an alternative for somebody who in, in a radio licenses are just simply not easy to get anymore. They're expensive or unavailable. So if you want to broadcast, you're limited in your options and to have seen this option, which used to be the the, the, the sort of the vent, right? It used to be the, well, if you can't get licensed, go online. It, it, yeah. Anyone can do it. It's simple. And then because people like to program music. Uh, the, the very tremendous cost of those royalties put people out of business and put another barrier in place. So if you wanted to do an all talk station where it had no uh, commercial music of any sort, all public domain bumpers, right? Or music you've specifically licensed <laughs> for the purpose. Yeah. Uh, you could do that without having to pay these royalties. So if we wanted to have like the, the radio survivor channel, just 24 seven, because we don't use any music that uh, is not in the public domain or we have not basically created or obtained a license for one way or another, um, we could do so without having to pay these royalties. But as soon as we want to play uh, a song, any song that is basically copyrighted in the United States, we'd have to pay these royalties. So to see this opportunity is is great. I think, you know, and, and it's something which people might not know about. And there's people who I think would like to create internet stations who are out there 
who won't know about it because it, it's such an esoteric piece of news. And we hope that maybe somebody who hears our podcast or, or reads radiosurvivor.com um, or hears this radio show will know about it and, and say, hey, wait a second. Maybe I can create that internet station. I've I, want, to I want 20 friends to get together and create internet radio stations just for each other. Like that's a that's a beautiful because dream, that's right? that's how all great ideas get started. It's really like all great bands get started when really it's just a bunch of people come together to play for their friends and play for a small group of people, and it grows from there. That's how great podcasts get started. That's how great radio stations get started. And I'd like to see this to be a flowering. So that that's why we want to talk about it. Um, you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com, dot uh, com where we you just click on internet radio. We've got a little subject header at the top. You can learn more. You click on podcast to hear more episodes of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. What do you think about internet radio? Yeah, uh, is there internet radio experience that you've had all by yourself that yeah. you would like to share with us? Cause that's, that's what's so fun about this is that every, everybody has a different experience. And, uh, and I, I want to know the story. Did you make radio? Did you listen to great radio? Were you one of these webcasters, maybe? Would you like to share what happened? Did you click on something in 1998 that changed the way you thought about music that that couldn't happen in 2008? Absolutely. So drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to actually hear your voice. Use the voice memo function on your phone or use uh, software on your computer and send us an MP3. Uh, We'd love to hear your commentary. We've we've broadcast a few, but, but far too few. Uh, we really mean it when we say we'd like to hear from you. Yeah. Send us that email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We want to point out that this is a listener-funded operation here. We depend on listeners like you and readers to radiosurvivor.com to keep us going. Learn how to support us at radiosurvivor.com slash support. Uh, we'd love to do more reporting. We'd love to dig in deeper uh, and you know, it's it's funding from folks like you that help us do it. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Paul, thank you so much for, for uh, taking the time to dig in to this story about Live 365 and where they're at. I'm glad you're doing the work because, uh, yeah, I, I this this kind of stuff, it's, it's not, you know, I wanted to offer this metaphor and hear what you had to say about it. It's as if there were these two enormous tanker ships like heading towards each other uh and one is like the the streaming giants of the internet the pandoras and the spotify industry and the other is like uh, uh i don't know I, I, my metaphor is starting to break down but then it, there's this dinghy floating in the ocean <laughs> that's the webcasters and they got crushed and it wasn't by design at all it was just sort it of was, yeah I, I think it was not by design it was it was because no one could no one's no one's looking at the dinghy yeah the dinghy did not have a representative at the negotiating yeah, and that's table. really it that's really it and that's what happens so much of the time and we we care about we care about the small guy we dinghy care media. about the independent media the dinghy media and we hope that maybe you do too we thank you so much for spending another hour with us and we hope to be talking to you again soon yeah thanks for listening everybody <laughs>